the difference between biblical Judaism and paganism is not merely the question of one versus many gods, though, of course, that is an important difference. But there is another question. Is nature divine, or is nature the handiwork of the divine? Welcome to Bible 365, episode 200, The Divine Artist. I am Mayor Soloveitchik. One of the most famous and celebrated passages in Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik's work, Halachic Man, is his description of how an appreciation of Judaism and Jewish law can impact one's experience of the natural world. The passage is joined with a description of his father, Rabbi Moses Soloveitchik. Quote, If a Jew cognizes the Sabbath laws and the precepts concerning the sanctity of the day in all their particulars, if he comprehends via a profound study and understanding that penetrates their very depths, the basic principles of Torah law that take on form and color within that tractate Shabbat, then he will perceive the sunset of a Sabbath eve not only as a natural cosmic phenomenon, but as an unsurpassably awe-inspiring, sacred and exalted vision, an eternal sanctity reflected in the setting of the sun. I remember how once, on the Day of Atonement, I went outside into the synagogue courtyard with my father just before the Ne'ilah service. It had been a fresh, clear day, one of the fine, almost delicate days of summer's end, filled with sunshine and light. Evening was fast approaching, and an exquisite autumn sun was sinking in the west, beyond the trees of the cemetery, into a sea of purple and gold. Rabbi Moses, a halachic man par excellence, turned to me and said, This sunset differs from ordinary sunsets, for with it forgiveness is bestowed upon us for our sins. The Day of Atonement and the forgiveness of sins merged and blended here with the splendor and beauty of the world and with the hidden lawfulness of the order of creation and the whole was transformed into one living, holy, cosmic phenomenon. End quote. This passage captures the complexity of the biblical approach to the natural world. On the one hand, we know that the Ten Commandments warn us not to worship nature. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. On the other hand, Judaism does not reject nature as religiously insignificant. On the contrary, Judaism worried about nature being seen as divine precisely because the images of nature are so central to our religious experience. This allows us to appreciate the Psalms about nature and why the biblical approach to nature changed the world. Before we study the Psalms about nature, we must understand what we mean by nature. Today, nature is something we go to, something separate from us. We tend to speak of nature the way Jews in New York City used to describe how In the summer, they would go to the country, meaning, say, the Catskills. But as C.S. Lewis notes, in the ancient world, the description of nature is a description of the world in which these people live. Or as he puts it, nature is what water is to a fish. In such a world, the temptation is to feel oneself at the mercy of nature and to therefore see nature as divine. And the divinity of nature was taken for granted in the ancient world by so many, but not by Israel. Thus, Psalm 8. The psalm begins by telling us that it is written by David, and then continues, O Lord our God, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. 
Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our God, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Let us ponder the message here. Nature is God's creation, and it therefore proclaims God's greatness. Or as Psalm 19 similarly says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Moreover, as C.S. Lewis points out, for the Psalms, our religious wonder and awe ought to extend even to the aspects of nature that are not utilized by man. Thus, Psalm 104 gives us verses like, The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he hath planted, where the birds make their nests. As for the stork, the fir trees are her house. The high hills are a refuge for the wild goats. And so on. This awareness of nature as God's creation induces awe of the Almighty and a feeling of humility among man. Or as David puts it, What is man that thou art mindful of him? If there is an artist that best captured this theme, it was Turner, in works like his image of the Carthaginian general Hannibal crossing the Alps. Consider one of the most daring military maneuvers in human history. Most depictions up to this point had emphasized Hannibal's heroism and the grandeur of his assault, with the general and his men astride elephants towering over their troops. But Turner, as many note, took in 1812 the opposite approach, giving us the general and his troops in a snowstorm at the mercy of the elements amidst the mountains. In the ultimate visual inversion, Turner gave us an elephant at the center of the scene, but you have to squint to see the elephant and Hannibal's soldiers astride it. The gargantuan beast is rendered as nothing by the towering might of the mountains and the swirling surrounding snow. Thus, the grandeur of nature created by God ought to inspire humility amongst us. On the other hand, because nature is not divine, God can give nature to man to cultivate and to use, or as David adds, Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. In today's day and age, we often fail to realize how revolutionary the biblical approach to nature, as illustrated in the Psalms, was in its time. And if we take this picture of nature for granted, it is because we are the beneficiaries of a perspective that the Bible brought into being. We have to appreciate in this regard that the difference between biblical Judaism and paganism is not merely the question of one versus many gods, though, of course, that is an important difference. But there is another question. Is nature divine, or is nature the handiwork of the divine? Here is how C.S. Lewis put it. Quote, The Jews, as we all know, believed in one God, maker of heaven and earth. Nature and God were distinct. The one had made the other. The one ruled and the other obeyed. This, I say, we all know. But for various reasons, its real significance can easily escape a modern reader if his studies happen not to have led him in certain directions. In the first place, it is for us a platitude. We take it for granted. Indeed, I suspect that many people assume that some clear doctrine of creation underlies all religions, that in paganism, the gods or one of the gods usually created the world, even that religions normally begin by answering the question, who made the world? In reality, Lewis continues, creation, in any unambiguous sense, seems to be a surprisingly rare doctrine. End quote. Lewis further notes that in most myths about the beginning of the world, the question of creation does not really come up. As an example, Lewis gives us the case of a man who has arrived ten minutes late to Shakespeare's Macbeth and has asked what has happened. Quote, When the curtain rises in these myths, there are always some properties already on the stage and some sort of drama is proceeding. You may say the answer to the question, how did the play begin, but that is an ambiguous question. Asked by the man who arrived ten minutes late, it would be properly answered, say, with the words, Oh, first three witches came in, and then there was a scene between an old king and a wounded soldier. 
That is the sort of question the myths are in fact answering. But the very different question, how does a play originate? Does it write itself? Do the actors make it up as they go along? Or is there someone not on the stage, not like the people on the stage, someone we don't see, who invented it all and caused it to be? This is rarely asked or answered, end quote. But of course, Jews do ask this question and answer it. And so, if I can extend the Shakespearean metaphor just a bit, using a quote from, as you like it, if all the world's a stage, biblical Israel is interested not only in what is happening on the stage, but also, and first and foremost, in who made the stage, who wrote the play. And when the Bible begins by giving us the answer, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then, through this perspective, nature de-divinized, created by the divine, is seen as a masterpiece of the Almighty, as his work of art. This was a revolution. But in the age of biblical Israel, the danger of worshiping nature was ever-present. And it is not a warning that today should be totally foreign to us. Because today, throughout the world, the worship of nature that the Bible had once taught the world to reject is sprouting once again. Writing about the Psalms in the 1950s, C.S. Lewis muses that the urge to worship nature is one that, quote, Europe has not felt for 1,000 years, end quote. I don't think that Lewis could write that today, because in the language of some, nature is described as divine once again. For the Bible, the fact that nature is not divine, but is the work of the divine, simultaneously means that it is subject to analysis, adaptation, and use by man, but also that it is a source of wonder and awe. The Romantic poet Keats once famously complained that Newtonian science had taken the magic out of the natural experience. He wrote, Do not all charms fly at the mere touch of cold philosophy. There was an awful rainbow once in heaven. We know her woof, her texture. She is given in the dull catalog of common things. Philosophy will clip an angel's wings, conquer all mysteries by rule and line, empty the haunted air and gnomed mine, unweave a rainbow as it erewhile made. Now Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik greatly appreciated the achievements of Newton and science. Saw it as a reflection of the extraordinary capacity with which God had gifted humanity. But at the same time, he also echoed one aspect of this poem by Keats in one of his speeches, an enigmatic Talmudic passage in which the rabbis describe one regarding the rainbow as one who does not cognize his creator. Rabbi Soloveitchik interpreted this passage as a Talmudic warning to never allow our analysis and understanding of physical phenomena to detract from the religious experience that takes place when we witness these wonders. Rabbi Soloveitchik put it this way, quote, He who looks at a rainbow, one of the most sublime of all cosmic phenomena, possessing the perfection of beauty composed of a symphony of astonishing color which appears in that glorious hour in which the light's radiance is fragmented into a multitude of enchanting colors, a seemingly rational phenomenon, perhaps, adequately explicable according to physical laws of causation. Yet he who looks at this ravishing sight and fails to see it as a reflection of the sublime nobility of the Almighty, and as evidence of heavenly beauty, but observes a rainbow and nothing more, such a person is blind to the glory of his Creator. End quote. Reading this passage today from Rabbi Soloveitchik, I remembered how some 20 years ago I had joined other Yeshiva University students to teach Torah to the Jewish community of Calgary. Following our time there, my friends decided to drive to Banff to see the Canadian Rockies. I confess I was not originally excited at the prospect. I am not what one would call an outdoorsy person. But in the end, I went with them. And seeing what I saw, the lake set amidst the mountains, is an experience that I will never forget. One that I believe did foster my faith. 
It is famously said of the 19th century rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch that he sought to visit the Swiss Alps because he believed that at the end of his life, the Almighty would ask him, Shimshon, have you seen my Alps? Well, I will be able to tell the Almighty that I have seen the Rockies and that I experienced there one moment of what the Psalms seek to inspire in us. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.